Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Good evening, everybody. Matt Spear from Don't Unfriend Me. It's wonderful to have you here tonight. Wednesday, August 18th, 8.25 p.m. We have a lot of people live, and Dee's been really pushy so far. She just told me to shh, just do it. So I'm going to shh and just do it. Tonight on Don't Unfriend Me, does anybody want a peanut? Does anybody want a peanut? What does it have to do with, well, the fun-loving president who loved peanuts, Jimmy Carter? There have been a ton of articles really saying nothing. A lot of people say it because it's a great talking point that Jimmy Carter and Biden have parallels, that there's lines of delineation between their presidency, but no one really talks about it. They take the lazy way out and say, Iran-Contra equals Afghanistan. But there is so much more. I mean, to line these two up, it almost looks like a mirror image. But what took Carter four years, Joe Biden's done in seven months. So tonight we're going over that. Stay tuned. Stay engaged. Watch us. If you're live, thanks for being here. If you're watching this recorded, hey, thanks for being here too. Intro is now, and then we are going to get on to it. from an undisclosed location always honest always direct so sit back relax don't unfriend me starts right now episode 207 and you got to give it props to my wife she is as hot as she sounds, I, I I have to admit. I'm a little bit biased, but she did my intro. She did my voice. We're going to have season three. We're developing right now the new graphics. I'm going to redo the entire set. I've got to do something cool. Uh, I'm not sure what it's going to be. If you have ideas, you can send them in to me, folks. Once again, Matthew Spear, episode 207. Wonderful to have you here. Thank you for showing up. These are my social media links. You can find me. Yes, I'm coming to TikTok. I can't believe I said it. But yes, I'm coming to TikTok. I had a listener say, dude, you've got to do it. And then I had a really large marketer who is a good friend named Tiffany from one of the major marketers on the, uh, the, the whole channels of radio and TV. I can't give you the name who said, you got to do TikTok. So I'm going to do TikTok. This should be fun. No, I'm not going to dance naked and do little jumping transitions and all that type of crap, but I'll try to segment my show and get some followers there if you choose to preview my show that way. What do we do here? We go over politics. We go over current events. We go over sports. We go over food and all other things. People are screaming online. No, don't do TikTok. Relax. I told you guys I will not participate during the show, but if you have not had a chance, please like, follow, and share on Facebook. Go over to YouTube, follow me there. We're trying to grow that channel. Instagram, or if that is not your particular brand of vodka, you can head over to don'tunfriendme.com. You can find my catalog there, my videos, and all of my other goodies and treats. Remember to like, share, and subscribe. Let's get into it. Does anybody want a peanut? No more rhymes now. I mean it. When he first took office, President Joe Biden reportedly told his advisors he wants to be the next 
Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But less than a year into his presidency, with an economic crisis that is mounting and his foreign policy humiliation stinging, it is clear Biden is just like Jimmy Carter, but worse. The steady creep of inflation during Biden's first several months in office has already reminded many of the Carter years. But the disaster in Afghanistan, the rushed chaotic withdrawal, and the Taliban's subsequent takeover has solidified the similarity between the two administrations. John, welcome. Sorry, guys. Gotta say hi to John. I'm going to show you two videos, and these videos are absolutely disturbing at best. I showed you some last night, gave you guys some pictures of what happened on the C-17s and some of the video, but this truly is disturbing. The first video you're going to see are actual Americans and Afghan nationals who support America trying to get through the barbed wire and trying to get into the airport, and this is what you will see. The next is the Biden administration explaining away why they're doing what they're doing and what they can expect and pleading with the Taliban to please play nice. We are continuing to process visas for Afghans eligible for SIV status and their families. For those who are early in the process, we are working with our allies and partners to move them to third countries while their paperwork is completed. We are also urgently accelerating our efforts to assist eligible Afghans under the priority one. Eligible Afghans, but we can let illegals come over from the southern border and we don't give a flying shit where they're from, what they do, what their ties are, what their political affiliation, papers, we don't need no stinking papers, just let them in. But Afghans who supported our country, we just say, oh, well, let's go ahead and fill out the necessary paperwork. Are you fucking kidding me? And I'm sorry I dropped an F-bomb. I apologize. I told my mother-in-law I wouldn't. I will count some rosary and I'll say I'm sorry. But it's bullshit, folks. It's absolutely wrong. We'll go over why, but this is what I'm talking about. And where did they find her? This looks like my kindergarten teacher. She's been dead for 20 years, by the way. Priority to P1 and P2 referrals to U.S. Refugee Admissions Program and Humanitarian Parole. And we are working on our own with our allies and partners and with NGOs to identify and assist other Afghans at risk, including women and girls, human rights defenders, journalists, and other civil society actors. Or anyone who isn't Taliban. That's what you mean to say, but they never say it, do they? They never say Muslim extremists. They never say anyone who isn't Taliban. Every single person who isn't is in danger. I don't care which country you're from. I don't care what your nationality is from. If you are not Taliban, you are in danger, period. We have seen reports that the Taliban, contrary to their public statements and their commitments to our government, are blocking Afghans who wish to leave the country from... Called it... Two nights ago. In the airport. Our team in Doha and our military partners on the ground in Kabul are engaging directly with the Taliban to make clear that we expect them to allow all American citizens, all third country nationals, and all Afghans who wish to leave to do so safely and without harassment. A majority of the world. Or what? Or what? Where's the threat? 
Where's the Reagan moment? Where's the Trump moment? Where's the Bush moment standing on the bodies in 9-11 and saying, they'll all hear us soon? Where the hell's our spine? You're asking nicely? Well, maybe we could send them a few billion dollars and maybe they'll more be acquiesced to our request. We're asking permission of terrorists to keep their word? What in the name of nine hells is going on with our country? We are pleading with terrorists. Please, please, for the sake of Allah, will you please be rational? No, no, no. Put away the vest. No, no. Take it away. No, no. Take off the vest. Take off the shroud of pure Egyptian cotton, please. Lower it. Do not bathe in the holy waters of Allah. Please do not clean your corpse for it's transcendent into heaven. Please, all of a sudden, no, no, get off your knees and stop praying to the sun for a moment and just listen to us. We're begging you to please allow our citizens to escape your country because we were a bunch of inept fools. Liberal foreign policy in action. This morning, as of this morning, 109 governments and counting have come together to underscore the same message. The State Department is tirelessly pursuing diplomatic efforts with our allies and partners in every region of the world to mobilize resources to save... All right, enough of her. I can't stand it anymore. Let's get to it. There are a few reasons why Carter is typically considered to be a bad president, folks. And I'm going to go through it all because it's really important for you to listen and hear the commonalities between Biden and Carter, and they are mirrors of each other. As much as Reagan and Trump were synonymous with each other's presidencies, this is eerily similar, but eerily bad. And if we're assuming that bad in this case means ineffective. After the Nixon and Ford years, Americans came to view their government as being coldly pragmatic, but more importantly, corrupt and incompetent. Moreover, in terms of international affairs, the U.S. was encountering the international system that was becoming increasingly multipolar. In other words, global power was shifting away from the two superpowers and disaggregating among the third world states, Asia and increasingly integrated Europe. This disaggregation of power was most clearly symbolized by the U.S. defeat in Vietnam and a series of oil crises that instigated by the OPEC, a conglomerate of oil-producing states based in the Middle East, in addition to Venezuela. This made gas prices soar in the United States. Carter believed that he could simultaneously renew America's trust in government and reassert America's leading role within global affairs. He failed in both regards. A lot of it had to do with his personality. He came to Washington believing that he could change the way politics was made. He hoped to make politics more transparent, which would, he believed, make politics more effective and less divisive. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Carter's self-perception as a reformer and Washington outsider concomitantly carried what can best be described as a savior complex. He looked down on other politicians, believing his deep-seated morality made him the only one capable of bringing the Washington establishment into line. Thus, Carter arrived in Washington, expecting Congress to fall lockstep behind his policies. Naturally, congressmen from both parties weren't really fond of the way Carter handled congressional relations. This tension between the executive and the Congress was exacerbated by Carter's aides, who were primarily old friends and staffers from when Carter was governor of Georgia. 
Georgia politics are, of course, nothing like Washington politics, and Carter's aides were woefully inadequate for the job. Still, he kept them, much to the chagrin of even the Democratic congressional leadership. And due to bad congressional relations, Carter had difficulty passing domestic reforms on such major issues as Social Security and health care. If this wasn't enough to derail his policies making process, Carter's hands-on approach to everything didn't help. He was a micromanager, and he was notorious for wanting to personally review and authorize even the most nominal and minimal of tasks, going so far as to personally okay each morning who would be allowed to use the White House's tennis courts. Tennis courts. Not all of the problems with the Congress stem from Carter's and his aides' personalities, though. After Watergate, politicians promised to make politics more transparent. This unfortunately made it more difficult for politicians to do the backroom bargaining that leads to compromise and eventually the passage of legislation. Moreover, Congress as an institutional structure was changing. And during Carter's presidency, Congress split into many different caucuses, basically groups of like-minded congressmen that allied to create mutually supported policies. These caucuses existed like always at the broadest level, Democrat and Republican. But now there were additionally a plethora of small caucuses like the African-American caucuses, a woman's caucus, regional caucus, etc., this explosion of caucuses allowed almost all congressmen to gain good committee assignments. And congressmen used these congressional committees, covered intensely by the media, as ways to generate publicity and gain support for re-election. And due to the greatest publicity that even junior representatives now held, there was less of a need to rely on their party label when they ran for office. Instead, they could run on personal recognition and name recognition. And all of this ultimately meant that there was less of a need for individual congressmen to hew toward the party line, which made it even more difficult for Carter to gather the support he needed for his policies. So what about foreign policy? In terms of foreign policy, one of Carter's strengths in 1976 election was that he rejected the Nixon administration's idea of real politic, which held that the international system did and should operate solely on the rational calculation of self-interest. America first. Carter instead believed that the United States should frame its foreign policy within moralistic terms, and early in his administration, he made human rights the top priority of U.S. foreign policy. In reality, this didn't happen. Instead, he relied on traditional Cold War conceptions of world affairs, centered on national self-interest. And after the Shah of Iran, who had brutally repressed the Iranian people for decades, was overthrown during the Iranian Revolution, Carter allowed him to come to the United States. And the Shah was suffering from cancer at the time, and Carter allowed him to come to the U.S. to receive chemotherapy. In what is probably a huge understatement, this didn't sit well with most Iranians. Soon after, the U.S. Embassy was overrun, and the American staffers there were held hostage for 444 days. Every day that the hostages remained in captivity showed America's apparent weakness on the world stage. It didn't help with all of the news outlets reminding Americans at the end of every broadcast, today is day 7, 84, 300, etc. of the Americans' captivity in Iran. 
To free the hostages, Carter attempted a nighttime raid by American special forces. A U.S. plane landed in the Iranian desert carrying stuff for the raid and soldiers. A handful of helicopters carrying more soldiers was coming to meet at the makeshift airfield when one of those helicopters flew into the plane, killing many Americans. Needless to say, it was a big embarrassment and only seemed to further prove America's weakness on the world stage. Iran wasn't the only foreign policy problem Carter faced, and in addition, the Soviet Union had been making great gains in the third world, particularly in Africa. Thus, it appeared that not only was the U.S. becoming weaker, but the Soviet Union was becoming stronger. This fear of increasing Soviet power culminated with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. Is everyone starting to see the parallels? Does history repeat itself? That's why it's important that we never forget history. But all of this was compounded by the worst economic crisis in the U.S. since the Great Depression. And Carter, no matter how correct he may have been, didn't exactly instill confidence in the American people. Regarding what appeared to be unending inflation, he told the public that all he had to offer were partial remedies. In the face of a rate of inflation in the double digits, he asked employees not to increase their wages by any more than 7%. It also didn't help that in general, Carter wanted to deregulate most government agencies. Thus, when many people were calling for some sort of government intervention, Carter was cleaning out many federal agencies. Foreign oil prices had been rising since the early 1970s, while U.S. reliance on foreign oil was simultaneously increasing. And while a problem throughout the 1970s, it became particularly bad in that 1979 year with OPEC that I mentioned earlier. This continued to raise oil prices. Gas shortages ensued. People began waiting in lines to get gas. Some people had to fill out forms and also do chits or a lottery to get gas. Other people seeing the long lines of cars waiting for gas thought that they needed to get in the line and get gas before it was all gone. And the lines got longer and the lines created lines because nobody was addressing the issue. There were so many people getting gas. People tried to get as much gas as they could, almost like toilet paper. Hmm. More parallels. Since everybody was spending money on really expensive gas, it drove down the amount of spending in other sectors of the economy, making deflation even worse. Simultaneously, because everyone was buying gas, oil prices continued to increase since such high demand only led to even further inflation. And everyone blamed Carter. And they should, because he was silent. I wonder if he had a basement too. All of these problems, foreign and domestic, appeared to show an ineffective president. At one point, Carter tried to show that he was being an active leader by asking for the resignation of his cabinet. Five resigned the Secretaries of Treasury, Energy, Hue, and Transportation, as well as the Attorney General, who dutifully complied. Instead of showing action, though, the American public believed the act only proved that Carter could not at all manage the presidency. And not all of these problems were Carter's fault, however. The economy was doing poorly when he came into office, and it didn't start getting better for a couple of years into Reagan's presidency, nor could he change the way post-Watergate politics was conducted. But his refusal to work with others, his need to oversee even the most minuscule of matters, and his inability or unwillingness to carry out a foreign policy that adhered to U.S. moral sensibilities and national interests really did make him one of the least effective presidents of the 20th century, certainly of the post-WW2 era. 
And like Carter's Iranian disaster, Biden's Afghanistan travesty will have long-lasting consequences. The Taliban is already working to set up their own government. It will no doubt receive help from some of the other terror threats in the region, including Iran. Even if you believe, as I do, that the withdrawal was necessary and long overdue, we should have been able to exit strategically without handing the reins over to a terrorist organization. Biden's failure is inexcusable. He has been in politics for far too long, not to have learned from his predecessor's mistakes. At least Carter could claim the guise of inexperience. It is really important right now to note what leave no man behind means to those of us in uniform. While not captured in doctrine, there are a few things more reassuring to a soldier about to enter combat that his brothers and sisters in arms would spare nothing in attempts to get him back. To the families of those fallen, the catharsis of being able to bury their own cannot be overstated or even understood by those who have not been in that sad and unfortunate position. We leave no one behind for very personal and transparent reasons. The Biden Defense Department said Wednesday afternoon that they don't have the capability to rescue Americans in Afghanistan who cannot get to Kabul's airport and that they will stay on the ground until the clock runs out. That suggests that the United States military intends to stand by its timeline of being fully out of Afghanistan by August 31st, regardless of whether Americans are left behind or not. The State Department also said on Wednesday that based on reports from Kabul, the Taliban is not abiding by an agreement to allow American citizens and Afghans with visas to leave. Americans were instructed by the State Department to make their way to the airport in a security alert that was issued Wednesday, but it does not appear that Americans who arrive at the airport can make it through the Taliban guards, which I just showed you pictures of. Biden gave a press conference today and this afternoon specifically, but did not address the situation in Afghanistan and did not take any questions on the subject. However, he did talk about COVID. The thing is that there are at least 15,000 estimated Americans on the ground. That is not including Afghan nationals who supported us. How do we truly define treason? And if you go off the Constitution, number one is levying war against the United States. Or number two, adhering to the enemies of the United States and giving them aid and comfort. Over the last few days, I have made several predictions as to what will occur over the next days, weeks, and months in Afghanistan. So far, I have been dead balls accurate. From door-to-door loyalty checks to women being beaten and beheaded, the pilfering of our weapon systems, the biometric systems, and soon we will see terrorist organizations use Afghanistan as a staging point of attacks on Europe, the Middle East, and the United States. It is just a matter of time. But something more sinister is happening here. This exfiltration is exactly what the framers had in mind when treason was added to the Constitution and clearly defined. Dereliction of duty, harboring the enemy, showing cowardice in the face of the enemy is the textbook definition of treason. Of course, we heard these words tossed around by leftists loosely in regards to President Trump, but that is to be expected. The leftists leftists often accuse others of what they have mastered as an art form. From John Kerry to John Brennan to Hillary Clinton and now Joe Biden. The behavior from Joe Biden has been that of a feckless, a bander in chief. We can pontificate all we want. We can grandstand with pundits on TV and explain away as Nancy Pelosi puts lipstick on a pig 
No, not her on her morning drive into work. But the fact remains that Joe Biden said it right when he proclaimed that the buck stops here. The comparison between Carter and Biden are not simply coincidence, but the failed policies that all leftists consider to be good for America. The simple fact is that Joe Biden has created this situation and now refuses to own his mistake. And the left keep defending their leader to the point that Americans will lose their lives because the other side isn't playing nice. Taliban is not abiding by an agreement to allow American citizens and Afghans with visas to leave. So what, we take our football and go home? The world is a stage, Mr. President. The world is watching. And before the curtains close on 15,000 Americans, maybe you might want to get involved and write a third act of the play. Just maybe you could do one thing that would take character and strength of heart. Release the full weight of the military on the region. Rain holy hell on the northern cities of Afghanistan and send a message to the Taliban that we will no longer play nice as well. Drop a Moab on the Bagram Air Base since it's a military target. Send hellfire from drones at every Humvee that is easily tracked with IFF control panels. We can lowjack a Ford. We can do the same for our military equipment. Send in the 101st and 82nd Airborne to take back the airport. Deploy the Marines to push them back into their caves. Destroy anything that moves after setting a curfew and clear warning to all in the area. And you heard me right. I am calling for an offensive, the likes that the world hasn't seen in decades. Because American soil is being desecrated. American lives are at stake. Our citizens are trapped, afraid, and alone. And the only thing these savages understand is holy hellfire from above. So arrange the meeting between Allah and the Taliban that they so desperately covet. Because Iran is watching. North Korea is watching. China is watching. And your inability to act may delay us from the battle in the short term. And ultimately lose us the war in the long term. It is time to earn that paycheck, Mr. President. Time to punch in and get to work or move over for someone who has the gumption to do what is necessary. You may have wanted to be FDR and you may resemble Jimmy Carter from a result standpoint, but at least he wasn't a coward. He was just a simpleton. On second thought, you have that in common as well. Saucy. Folks, that's it for Don't Unfriend Me tonight. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Remember, you can agree, you can disagree, you can love me, you can hate me. It really doesn't matter. Just don't unfriend me. I will see you tomorrow night for episode two. I don't know where we're at. 208, 209, whatever. It ends in a two. But first, before we go there, Veteran Crisis Hotline, 1-800-273-8255. Press one. 22 veterans commit suicide a day with the things going on in Afghanistan. September 11th coming up. Holidays. More suicides will take place. It bumps up to 25 during the holidays. Traumatic brain injury, PTS, anxiety, depression are all real things. Veterans need to talk about it, and they can't do it without you. Reach out to them. Provide them this number. If they won't talk to you, reach out to me. Send me a PM. I'll make the call with you. If that doesn't work, they can go to don'tunfriendme.com. They can click on a VCL link and be connected to a VCL operator live. If you are not a veteran and you are a civilian, they won't turn you away. They turn nobody away. Reach out to VCL. It is a great great organization. Folks, that's it for me tonight. Remember, stick around. I've got all your comments that have been lighting up like a Christmas tree. I think I impressed a few people tonight. That's good. I'll be right back after the closing of the show. Stick around. I'll get all your comments. Thank you so much. God bless.